Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Hello, Tony, and hello to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be back with you for another episode of Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. This is, of course, our final podcast before the federal election this weekend. And so there is, as always, a plenty for Tony and I to discuss. And there'll be three key things that we'll be discussing today. First, Tony is going to give us his insights and analysis and assessment of what to expect um, this weekend and what to think about over the next three years. Uh, We're going to talk about the importance of opposition, whether it ends up being the coalition or Labor in opposition and the role that that plays in our democracy. And finally, to round out our discussion today, uh, Tony is going to give us his assessment of what are the three key things that the next government, again, whether coalition or Labor, uh, should be focused on over the coming uh, term of government. So, Tony, uh, to start with, great to be with you again, uh, as always. And to begin, how about we get your assessment of how things are shaping up as we head into the final week of the campaign? Dan, this is the hardest election to read of any of the elections that I've been looking at as, a, as an adult over the last 30-odd years. Um, there's no doubt that after three terms in office, governments get a bit shop-soiled. There's no doubt that the public are bad-tempered as a result of uh, two years of pandemic. Uh, So that's difficult for the government, obviously. On the other hand, I don't think there's any great sense of enthusiasm for the opposition. I remember back in 2007, strange to say now, but back in 2007 there was a real enthusiasm for Kevin 07. Uh, I think he was a dreadful disappointment, to put it at its (laughs) mildest. Uh, I think there was a lot of buyer's remorse, but nevertheless... uh, there was this view that we needed a change and this guy was a breath of fresh air. Uh, That's not the sense that I get from this election. Nevertheless, uh, you've got to take the poll seriously. Uh, It's going to be tough for the coalition, but if they make every post a winner over this final week, it can still happen. Uh, Scott Morrison could still have his second miracle. And certainly... Uh, At last, yesterday, we saw a a significant new policy. Mm. I've always thought that superannuation belongs to us. It doesn't belong to the government. It doesn't belong to the industry super funds. It's our money. And if at an important time of our lives, we want to use our money to secure our future by way of home ownership, why not? So I think it was a really good policy that Scott Morrison brought down yesterday and I hope it's a game changer. I hope it provides uh, the enthusiasm that the government needs to carry it uh, forward to victory and certainly uh, it does provide, I think, a significant point of difference. Uh, On the one hand, you've got the government that wants to encourage home ownership by allowing you more freedom to use your resources On the other hand, you've got the Labor Party uh, that says that they want to encourage home ownership by the government. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
it's not so much you buying your home, it's the government buying your home. And I think that's uh, got a lot of potential to excite people in this last week. Mm. Speaking of the last week, the nature of voting and campaigning has changed a lot over the last couple of decades with the growing advent of uh, pre-polling. I think I read that something like 20 to 25% of people have already cast their vote. How, in your assessment, does that change the nature of campaigns? I suspect one part of it is campaigns will just go for longer. Uh, And secondly, perhaps there's fewer and fewer people that you can convince later on in in the campaign. How's that sort of affected campaigns, in your opinion? Look, uh, John Howard would famously say you can't fatten a pig on market day. And I tend to think that most people have a pretty good idea at the start of a campaign where they're going to vote. Uh, Obviously, if dramatic things happen, uh, that could change. But um, I reckon that uh, it is important to let the public know, whether you're in government or in opposition, pretty clearly what you intend to do for the country should you win the election, which means that the campaign is is really just an opportunity to reinforce messages as opposed to um, suddenly strike out in a new direction. Mm. Uh, but you're right, uh, it is a bit uh, odd to those of us uh, whose memories go back 40-odd years uh, uh, to find uh, first uh, that you can have pre-polling a fortnight or even three weeks before the election day, and second, uh, frankly, to have campaign launches so late in the election. Well, just just on the topic of uh Pre-polling, in my opinion, is that it's not very healthy because you've sort of got it's not one election in a way. Like I prefer the idea that everyone rocks up on the day and votes because everybody's theoretically had the had the same look at both sides of of politics. Now I understand there's exceptions if you're overseas or if you're in military service and so forth, but the idea of having you know a quarter of a people already voting before election day to me strikes me as as a bit of a a bit of an issue in terms of what is the information basis on which people are voting. What, what do you do? You reckon it's a big deal, or you're not too fast? Look, instinctively, I'm not that keen on it. It strikes me a little bit like leaving a footy match with ten minutes to go, um, sort of uh, uh, turning away from the Melbourne Cup when they come round the home corner, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I, I've I've always voted on polling day. Uh, I intend to continue to vote on polling day. Uh, I think that out of courtesy to all of the candidates, you probably should allow them to finish their pitch before you make your final, uh, you actually cast your verdict on them. So look, uh, I'm uncomfortable with it. Um, And if if it were me, I'd go back to the old days where um, you could cast a postal vote uh, if for whatever reason you weren't able to get to the polls on polling day, or you could actually go down to the uh, divisional electoral office and vote there, uh, but you would have to have a very good reason mm. uh, to cast an early vote. And um, in theory, you've still got to have a reason to cast an early vote, but in practice, you just rock up and vote. And mm. uh, judging by the number of people hanging around the pre-poll places, there's been a lot of early voting. Yes. No, there has. There certainly has been. So I'd like to move on to our second topic now, which is the nature of opposition and the importance of opposition in a democracy. And again, this is irrespective of if it's coalition or Labor that find themselves in opposition. 
I just want to set this up by saying one of the big problems I think we've had in the country over the last couple of years, certainly at the state level, has been, a, in my assessment, a complete and total lack of effective opposition, uh, certainly in politics, and we could also talk about in the media and elsewhere, when it came to lockdowns and COVID policy, we were bereft of an honest debate. And I think people were deprived of a voice and we went down a very, very negative road as a nation, which you and I have discussed. You are perhaps the most successful and effective opposition leader in recent memory uh, and your ability to articulate key points of difference is, is well known and established. Given all of your experience and success in, in politics over the years and in public life, can you share with us your observations about the role of oppositions and why they're so important to the health of our democracy? First of all, Dan, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, there was not nearly enough debate uh, at any level over the course of the pandemic. I don't think any Australian parliament has had a full-scale debate uh, about pandemic policy. Sure, uh, there's been the opportunity for aspects of it to be questioned inside party rooms, there's been the opportunity to ask questions in question time. But at no stage has any one of our parliaments had a proper debate about it in the way, for argument's sake, that we would ha- that we debated uh, the start of the Iraq war, for instance. Uh, um, I can remember back in, in 2003, there was a, a, a very fierce debate uh, in the parliament over the circumstances that were causing us to commit forces to the coalition operations in Iraq. And frankly, that's as it should be. That's as it should be. Um, Every year, there were parliamentary statements uh, on Afghanistan, and there was the opportunity uh, to debate them in the parliament subsequently. Uh, But we haven't had any serious debate uh, in any of our parliaments about pandemic policy. So scrutiny, Mm. scrutiny is absolutely essential Dan, uh, to effective government. I'm sure one of the reasons why Vladimir Putin has done so badly uh, in his current military adventurism is because in a totalitarian or authoritarian system, there are not enough competing voices. There is not enough questioning. And the job of the opposition, first and foremost, is to subject the government to scrutiny, uh, public scrutiny. Uh, because uh, what the government is doing uh, should be capable of withstanding public scrutiny and uh, that's why oppositions are so important. Um, I don't expect oppositions to oppose everything and typically something like 80 to 90% of legislation goes through the parliament without a division because it's routine or because it's uncontroversial. But all the big decisions that governments make should be properly scrutinised and if the opposition is just waving important stuff through, it's not doing its job. Mm. What about the mechanics of being in opposition? So when when you're in government, you've at least theoretically got the uh, institutional support of the public service mm-hmm. and the bureaucracy and, you know, we might, or you might like to opine on this and we might uh. discuss, you know, in reality when you have a centre-left bureaucracy advising a centre-right government, how well does that work in practice? But you've still theoretically got that institutional support. When you're in opposition, you don't really have that mm-hmm. in the same way. What are the mechanics of being in opposition? When you were opposition leader, how did you come up with policy ideas? Uh, who sort of made the decisions and, and what was the sort of operational tactical components, if you like? 
Well, in, in the end, you shouldn't rely on the public service to tell you what to do. Uh, the job of the public service is not uh, to tell the government what it should do. The job of the public service uh, is essentially to do what the government decides because everything needs to be implemented. Now, it's true that good public servants have been studying their field and they've presumably been asking themselves how might different things be handled better. And, and so typically uh, the public service will give you a, a, a range of options. But in the end, uh, it, it's, it's really up to the elected and accountable politicians to decide what should be done. So when you think of the key things that the Abbott opposition was on about, stopping the boats, repealing the various bad taxes, uh, fixing the budget, uh, building infrastructure. These were all things that just stemmed from our instinctive conviction that, yes, we had a disaster on our borders that needed to be fixed pronto. Uh, yes, we had a budget emergency that needed to be dealt with as quickly as possible. Uh, yes, we had these appalling new taxes that were socialism masquerading as environmentalism. And yes, there'd been dreadful ne neglect of infrastructure, which is why our cities were choking on their own traffic. So we didn't need the public service uh, to tell us what to do. But when you are in opposition, obviously, uh, that's where think tanks that are broadly simpatico with your party uh, do come into their own. Um, the golden age of reform in this country was the was the Hawke Howard era, and so much that was done in those days: uh, the tariff cuts, the privatisations, uh, the financial deregulation, um, were being uh, articulated and argued for by bodies such as this, the IPA, the Centre for Independent Studies. And back in those days, the Business Council of Australia, particularly under Hugh Morgan's leadership, uh, was a very, very powerful force uh, for better public policy. So you do look to think tanks uh, for at least some inspiration, but in the end, it's up to you. Mm. You're the person who makes the decision, um, individually or collectively, um, and you should be accountable for it. And how did you go about, I guess, setting up the the overall strategic uh, differentiation between opposition and government. So it's, you know, there's any number of things that you could choose from in terms of what is what is it that you're going to focus on as, as an opposition. Was it just mostly based on that instinct? Was it based on a sense of what you thought the Australian people were most concerned about? Was it based on um, other advice and factors? What drove that? Uh, well, in the end, Dan... Conservative government, centre-right government, is about problem-solving. Um, leftist government is about dreaming some big dream and attempting to change the world to conform to that. Um, but a conservative government basically says, what are the problems we are facing now? Uh, how, how might we address them in ways which better reflect the real ideals, the real values, the real virtues of our people. And uh, this is why 
I, I tend to think not to, to talk not so much of reform, but almost of restoration, mm, mm. because uh, we are a great country. We can sometimes veer a little bit off the rails one way or another, and the important thing is not so much building a new track off to some place we've never been before. The important thing is making sure the track we're on is heading. Uh, Still heading in the right direction. Mm. Well, that that's a good segue into the last part of our discussion, which are the big challenges facing our future and what you might think are the, let's say, three big things that we should be focusing on. I think there's clearly, as you've identified, issues with our national security. Um, on the economic front, we've got over a trillion in debt and looking back, the 2014 budget was the last time that a government seriously tried to rein in the debt and fix the budget. And then culturally, we've got the issues that we've discussed with identity politics and the national curriculum. So look, a nation is always going to have problems. Uh, nothing is ever going to be perfect. But it, I do get the sense that, and I think a lot of Australians are having the sense that things are more precarious perhaps than they have been in recent living memory. Um, could you offer us your observations and insights into what you think the three big things are, regardless of who forms government? Yes, Dan. Uh, obviously, uh, as you've just uh alluded to, our prosperity and our security has rarely been more precarious. Not for 70 years has uh, our safety as, an, as, as a nation and our ongoing uh, financial security been as at risk as it is now. Uh, in terms of security, we do need to keep our alliances in good repair and the Morrison government, to its great credit, has done a lot of good work here in terms of revitalising the Quad and uh, the new um, uh, AUKUS arrangement. Just These remind are, us what the Quad is again. The Quad, thank you. Yes, we, we insiders tend to <laughs> to talk in code. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for reminding me. I mean, I mean, the Quad uh, links uh, Japan, India, Australia, and the United States, the great Indo-Pacific democracies. Um, in uh, what I suppose is not a formal alliance, uh, but it's a partnership for a rules-based global order. And it's not specifically directed against anyone. Uh, it's directed in favour of something, a rules-based global order. Uh, but plainly, there is a major challenger in our region to that rules-based global order, and, and that's China. And I think it's important that the great democracies uh, consult closely and act cohesively in response to all of those challenges. O obviously, at the moment, we're incredibly and rightly concerned about uh, Russia's genocidal attacks on Ukraine. Uh, but we shouldn't forget that China is casting covetous eyes on Taiwan and the traditional Chinese government approach to its neighbours is to regard them all as essentially tributary states. We saw in the 14 demands that China made of us late in 2020 what they expect of other countries, and that is complete obedience uh, to Chinese dictates. Uh, and in our case, it means uh, never refusing any Chinese investment, never refusing uh, any uh, Chinese uh, students or Chinese immigration. It means never criticising anything that China does and it means abandoning the US alliance, uh, plainly. 
this is n- not anything that a self-respecting sovereign country could agree to. So uh, we, we do need to keep our alliances in better repair. We do need to uh, accelerate and expand our military build-up. Uh, I do think we need to heed the lessons of the Ukraine war, which is more um, low-cost platforms as opposed to few incredibly high-cost platforms. And I think that's going to require uh, a big reorientation in thinking from our defence procurement people. Um, the government's been saying for some time that this is the largest peacetime military build-up in our history. Unfortunately, it's one of the slowest, and it really does need to accelerate greatly uh, whoever is in government uh, after uh, next Saturday. Indeed. Well, just on the topic of national defence, I'd, I'd add in there, and I'll set it up for you if you want to have a go at it or not, uh, is the woke generals who seem to be talking about climate change and you know various other cultural and identity issues when we've got these very significant national mm-hmm. security challenges. I mean, to me, that seems like a really, really big, problem for our country and what's your what's your take uh, on it well, well there's the there's the prosperity challenge there's the security challenge um they're, they're the they're the two big problems that we face that are in a sense external to us but internal to us dan there's the governance challenge because uh, we're not as good at getting things done governmentally now as we were a generation ago and there's the cultural confidence challenge because um, too many people who should know better are constantly running down our society rather than building us up. I mean, all this talk uh, in school curricula of Invasion Day and Anzac Day being a contentious idea uh, and this idea that mm. uh, everything has got to be taught from an Indigenous and Asian or a sustainability perspective, which reinforces notions of national illegitimacy, uh, notions of natru- national inadequacy uh, and notions of uh, environmental uh, uh, despoliation. I mean, th- these are not good concepts to be constantly pouring into the heads of, of, of young Australians. So, so, so just to get back to the, to the main challenges, um, uh, we've got the security challenge and you're right, uh, the job of the armed forces is to smite the enemy. Uh, it's not to be social engineers. And yes, of course, uh, you would like the armed forces to be a reasonable representation of the population. Uh, but frankly, uh, wanting to have 50% female uh, in front frontline combat units is not really a great idea. Mm. Um, so, so, so uh, on the economy. Uh, we we can't assume uh, that we are always going to be the lucky country. Um, we we can't assume that our God given natural endowment uh, is always going to uh, enable us to sail through without much effort. Um, we 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 do need to get government spending under better control than it is uh, right now. And I know the pandemic has in a sense, suspended the normal rules for a while. Uh, but the budget rule in the Howard government and in the Abbott government was that there could be no new spending whatsoever uh, other than on national security and, econ- and economic infrastructure that was not funded 
by savings to existing spending. And I think the sooner we get back to that rule, the better. Uh, every time there's, there's a problem, <clears throat> instead of just um, accepting that uh, personnel have stuffed up uh, and maybe should be changed, uh, we assume there's something wrong with the system. So there's always a whole galaxy of new rules and entities which um, just make it harder for our productive people. So the deregulatory agenda uh, needs to be returned to with great vigour. Um, and then there's this question of, uh, of, of, of constipated government generally. Uh, we've got a Senate uh, where it's very difficult for the government of the day to get a majority. That's not so much of a problem for governments of the centre-left because uh, populist crossbenchers can uh, always be found uh, to vote for more government spending, uh, more regulation uh, and more taxes on the so-called rich. But if your agenda is to spend less, to regulate less uh, and to be less burdensome on the most productive people in our country, it's very mm. hard, very hard indeed at the moment to get a Senate majority for that. So we've got a Senate problem and then we've got um, our dysfunctional federation, which was on full display during the pandemic. Mm. Uh, it, it's so hard to know these days uh, who exactly is responsible for what and who to blame when things go wrong. And a classic instance of this is the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Now, all of us want to do the right thing by people with serious disabilities and the concept uh, is a very good one and not for a moment would I deny uh, that the NDIS as it's operated over the last couple of years uh, has helped uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, in ways superior to the previous help but the governance of the thing uh, is, is, is an absolute mess. I mean essentially uh, it's governed by all of the state territory and federal ministers, which means, in effect, it is a law unto itself. Um, and, and the Commonwealth pays the lion's shares, share of the bills without actually having any real authority over how the thing operates. And uh, uh, it's not going to be easy to fix this. Uh, and uh, um, I'm not saying uh, we should be cutting spending, I am saying that we should be ensuring that the governance is sound so that the spending mm. is as effective as it can and should be. Mm. Well, thank you for that assessment, uh, Tony, and uh, we are going to have to leave it there for today. You're a very busy man. You've been in Perth and then Brisbane and now Melbourne and then you're heading off um, to Adelaide. So uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to continue these discussions as we head into the final week of the um, campaign. So, Tony, thank you once again for your, your generous insights and observations. And, Dan, I look forward to, to an election wrap-up in a couple of weeks' time. Yes, <laughs> likewise. So, thank you, Tony, and talk in a couple of weeks. This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.